We are continuing our study of David and his life. And uh, just to catch you up, last week we talked about David and his coronation as king. So he is now the king over united Israel. The northern side and the southern part of Judah are together again. There's a new capital in Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant has been brought to Jerusalem. David wanted to build a temple, but the Lord said, that's not for you to do. Your son will do that. But you will be the ancestor of a king who will reign forever. And that's where we left off. And tonight's lesson is, I guess you can kind of look at it as a little standalone episode in his life, a little parenthesis in the story. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're calling this lesson, Grace in a Barren Place. So if you'll turn over to 2 Samuel 9, this is a story of how David shows kindness to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And uh, Charles Swindoll, in his book on David, called this, this little story one of Scripture's richest illustrations of grace. And I think he's right in that. So that's how we're going to look at it tonight. We're going to study it in terms of grace. And we're going to see how it foreshadows Christ's work on the cross on our behalf. We're going to see what we can learn as an analogy between Mephibosheth's experience and our own experience as sinners saved by the grace of God. So let's uh, just kind of work through the story, pausing to draw connections to our own lives as, as we have opportunity. And uh, first of all, let's do a little introduction to Mephibosheth. Great name, right? I'm going to get to say that several times this evening. Mephibosheth, he began life in a king's palace. And uh, there's a little background on this. Um, he lived in the king's palace, according to 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. He lived there in the house of Saul uh, until he was about five years of age. And um, we'll talk about the circumstances of his being removed from that palace in just a little bit. But the first five years of his life were a good years where he was privileged, he was favored, he was an heir to the throne. He was Jonathan's son, grandson of King Saul. And, uh, you know, we all, to make an analogy to our experience, all of us start out life in fellowship with the king. Uh, in these stories where you read about kings, you need to understand that the kings you read about, like David, are the lower kings. And God is always the upper king. And a king is successful, in Israel at least, insofar as he is transparent to the upper king. The more the people can see God through David, the more successful he is. The more opaque he is, to God's will and God's rule, the less successful he is. And uh, that's true of any king over Israel or Judah, over God's people. Really, we could say that's true of any leader of a nation 
in all of history up to today. Their success is really determined by how much people can see God through them. And so we start out under a king as well. In fellowship with him, everyone is born in fellowship to the king. We reject the idea of original sin or inherited sin. I know that's taught in a lot of religious groups, but it's not taught in the Bible. The Bible says that the son will not inherit the sins of his father. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. Uh, when Jesus wanted to show people what kind of folks would inherit the kingdom of heaven, in Matthew 18, verse 3, he put before them a little child. And those are just some examples of how we come into the world. We come into the world in fellowship with God. It's sin that drives us away from Him. And so until we reach the age of accountability, we're like Mephibosheth up to the age of five, in the king's palace in fellowship with the king, uh, an heir to all the promises. But the story continues. So in the second place, notice that Mephibosheth's life was disrupted by disaster, leaving him crippled for the rest of his life. So this happens in 2 Samuel 4. I was alluding to this in the last point. But if you want to turn over to 2 Samuel 4, look at verse 4, when we talked about Ishbosheth's murder. This was um, the only last living son of Saul when David came to the throne. And there was civil war there for a time in Israel. Some people were showing allegiance to Saul's house, Ishbosheth, and some to David. And so Ishbosheth is murdered by his own people, and that's the end of Saul's house. And so there's a great rush to evacuate the, the, the palace where all of Saul's people were. And verse 4 of 2 Samuel 4 says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So I got some of the details there wrong. He, he didn't have his injury when Ishbosheth was murdered, but when Saul and Jonathan were killed on the battlefield. That's when the nurse swept this young five-year-old child up and dropped him, and he sustained injuries that he had with him the rest of his life. Lame in both feet. And so we assume that he wasn't able to walk at all or if he was able to walk, it was with great difficulty needing some kind of assistance. And so his life was just disrupted by this tragedy, the tragic death of his father, his grandfather, which also displaced him, and uh, he had to leave the palace. And that's an analogy to what sin does in our lives. Sin is crippling. Sin disrupts our lives. We commit the sin but then we suffer for it. And we see this from the beginning. You can look at the first sin committed by Adam and Eve. Think of all that changed in the world. So it changed Adam and Eve immediately. Their eyes were opened. If you remember Genesis chapter 3, they realized that they were naked. They became ashamed and covered themselves with fig leaves. And they hid themselves from God. Remember, we start out in fellowship with God but now they're ashamed to be seen by 
God, they're no longer in fellowship with Him, you see. It changed humanity in general. From that day forward, according to Genesis 3, uh, 16 and following, uh, women began to have their pain multiplied in childbirth. Uh, people had to start, their work became toilsome and difficult. Uh, and most obviously, they would physically die. They were banished from the garden where the tree of life was, and life became mortal at that point. Now, with each and every one of us, there is a disruption because all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And when we commit sin, Isaiah says, we make a separation between ourselves and God. Every act of sin is an act of war against God. We turn our backs on Him and it, it drives a wedge between us. Their relationship is broken. That fellowship is gone. And a spiritual death takes place. The wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. So we see that analogy here. Mephibosheth started out life well, but his life was suddenly disrupted, just like sin disrupts our lives. Let's continue. We bring David in, and this is when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9. David was looking for someone to whom he could show grace. So let's uh, turn over to chapter 9. And there's a question that begins the chapter in verse 1. David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He's looking. He wants to show someone kindness from the house of Saul for Jonathan's sake. Now, there's a little background here where we need to look at two promises that David had made previous to this. One to Jonathan, his friend, the father of Mephibosheth, and the other to King Saul. So first of all, turn back over to 1 Samuel chapter 20 and look at verses 15 and 16. This is, uh, we talked about Jonathan and, and uh, David's friendship and how they made a covenant with one another. And you remember that Jonathan sadly had to warn David to flee because his father was trying to kill him. And it's in that conversation when Jonathan says to David, this is 1 Samuel 20, verse 15, Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. He knows that Saul's days are numbered. He know, Jonathan knows he's not going to be the next king. David is going to be the next king. And when kings came to the throne, in those days, what did they do? They eliminated all the rivals. They executed the sons of the previous king if they weren't... Even, well, I've started to say if they weren't in that family, but sometimes even if they were in the family, they would execute their siblings, get them out of the way. So Jonathan, you know, this is the standard operating procedure, but he doesn't want this to happen to his son Mephibosheth or anybody else. And he asked David to promise that he won't cut off his steadfast love. Now, this word steadfast love is um, translated um, loving kindness, I think, in some translations you might have. And it's a very important Hebrew word, kesed. It's one of the most theologically important words in the Old Testament. 
It's one of the most frequently used words in the Old Testament, often used of God's loyal love toward us. And it has to do with kindness and mercy and, and an undying love. It's, it's higher than, than just your average affection for one another. It might be kind of an equivalent to agape over in the New Testament, but it, it's a covenantal love It's how it's often described. And this is the language that Jonathan is using in the covenant that he makes with David. Show this steadfast love, this loyalty, this kindness, this undying love. And that undying love is the essence of grace. And so it's very interesting when you, you see that first promise and you compare it with 2 Samuel 9, 1 that we read. The question we read just a moment ago, go back and look at it. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? The word kindness comes from that same word. So David definitely has his mind on that covenant he made with his friend. He has not forgotten, and his love is still strong. That's the first promise, the one he made with Jonathan. Now, as background to this question, also look at the second promise that he had made to King Saul. And uh, Will went over this part of David's life with you when he was filling in for me from 1 Samuel 24, verse 21. You remember when David had the opportunity to kill Saul, he actually had this opportunity on a couple of occasions. On one of those occasions when he showed mercy to Saul, Saul had the same realization his son Jonathan had, that David was going to be the next king. So listen to what Saul says in 1 Samuel 24, verse 21. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And despite all that Saul had done to him, David swore. He made the promise. Essentially the same promise he had already made to Jonathan. So that's the background. It explains the question in 2 Samuel 9. A lot of things have happened. Saul and Jonathan have died on the battlefield. One of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, split the nation and tried to make a run for the throne. Uh, he was assassinated and David brought the kingdom together, brought the Ark of the Covenant in, made Jerusalem capital. All of this has happened, and a lot of men would have forgotten, or maybe they wouldn't have been sincere from the very beginning, but, John, but David remembers, and he's going to keep his promise. So he takes the initiative. This is a very important part of it. This isn't Mephibosheth coming to him asking for mercy. He, he's not even sure anyone is alive. He doesn't know about Mephibosheth. But he's asking, is there anyone still living in Saul's house that I can show kindness to for the sake of my friend Jonathan? Um, he didn't have to do that. This did not help him politically. As I said, the usual custom was to kill all the rivals to the throne. Uh, he didn't do that. He took the initiative to show love. And this is what God does for us. God does not need us as children. God is not lacking in any way. He doesn't need anything. But in His grace and loving kindness, His undying love, He reaches out to us. He takes the initiative. He sent His Son to die before we asked for it. 
before we couldn't do anything to help ourselves. He sent Jesus to die for us by grace. By grace you've been saved through faith. It is not your own doing, not a result of works that no one should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. So we see this illustrated in David's action here in this question, 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. Let's go to the fourth point. Indeed, yeah. We can see God's heart in this particular chapter as we look at David. That's a good point. David found Mephibosheth in a place called Lodabar. Um, let's look at verses 3 and 4 of 2 Samuel 9. Uh, in response to David's question, someone found a servant of Saul named Ziba. Ziba, I'm not sure how to say it. I'm going to be saying Ziba tonight, okay? Is everybody all right with that? Ziba. And Ziba says this. There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't read a whole lot of compassion in that answer. He doesn't even give the king the man's name. Mephibosheth, by the way, this probably is about 15 years following the accident, so he's maybe 20 years old. Um, he doesn't even mention his name. By the way, Mephibosheth means one who scatters shame. So it wasn't a good name anyway. Um, he does mention, though, that he was crippled in both feet. Now maybe this is because there's a lot of ways to read that. Uh, maybe he was saying it in disdain for Mephibosheth, saying he's, you know, not worth your attention or something ugly like that. Uh, as we'll see later, Ziba is not the best person in the world. That's very possible. Or he might have been trying to protect Mephibosheth and saying, thinking that David was looking for somebody to kill and make sure that he didn't have any rivals. And so he's saying, he's not a threat to you. You don't have to worry about him. He's not a man of war. He's disabled physically. We're not sure why he mentioned that, but it was like the first thing that he mentioned. And it was the way that he looked at Mephibosheth. It was the way he identified Mephibosheth. And he also tells him that he's in this place called Lodabar. Lodabar would be uh, in the general vicinity of Jabesh-Gilead. That's up in the north, Transjordan, which means to the east of the Jordan River. Far, far away from Jerusalem. Um, Saul's people had retreated up to that area, um, running from David. The name of this place is very interesting, because if you look it up, Lodabar translated means no pasture. Lo is like the word no. Uh, over in um, Hosea, his children are named Lo-Ruama and Lo-Ami which means no mercy and not my child. So lo debar, lo means no pasture, which means something like place of desolation. A lot of times you're reading this and you wonder, is this guy's name really Mephibosheth or is the writer identifying him with shame? Did he really live in a place called lo debar or is He's so destitute that this is a symbol of the place. We're not sure, but I think these names are significant. Because Mephibosheth, as we'll see, 
really was in a place of desolation. He could not help himself. He was without hope. And that's where we are in sin. We're helpless. We can't do anything for ourselves. We're without hope. And there's nothing we can do but humbly and gratefully seek God's help. Okay, let's look at the next point. David took Mephibosheth from a barren wasteland from Lodabar and seated him at the king's table in his palace. So the king goes to Lodabar, and when he does, Mephibosheth falls on his face and pays homage. You think about, we don't know the extent of his disability, but this was probably a very difficult thing for him to do, both to get down on his face to pay homage and to get back up from that position. Probably very painful, very awkward, hard for him to do, and uh, um, probably a rather humiliating thing for him to do. But this shows his, his uh, respect for David, but maybe also his fear. Because again, what did most people come to expect of the new king? If you're the last king's son, you're probably not going to be the best friend of the new king. He doesn't know why David's there. But David says this in verse 7. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness. There's that word kesed again. For the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table always. So we get some interesting details there. Apparently, the land of Saul had gone into David's hands when all of Saul's heirs and servants ran away. So David had expropriated uh, Saul's ancestral land around Gibeah. That's where Saul was from. David had this, very valuable, um, but he said, I'm going to give all of that to you. You're the last living heir. I'm going to change your life here. I'm going to give you this land back. And Mephibosheth is astonished. Look at his response in verse 8. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? He had come to think of himself in such horrible ways. His self-esteem was, was in the basement here. I'm a dead dog. Why, why would you show this? But this is how God's grace is for us. We're the dead dog in this scenario. We can't help ourselves. We're completely helpless in a moral wasteland. And God takes us and he brings us up out of that place and establishes us in a place of spiritual nourishment and fellowship. Uh, I think of Romans chapter 5 or 6. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, and I also noticed something that David said. If you go back to verse 7, he says, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And it reminds me that as Christians, God shows us kindness and grace, not for our sake, not because of anything that we had done, but for the sake of his son Jesus. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul is listing all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. This is a good example of this. Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. 
in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So it's because of Jesus that God can show us this grace, not because of anything that we have done. I think it's an interesting parallel to what David's saying at Mephibosheth's doorstep. It's because of your father that I'm here. And God says to us, it's because of my son Jesus that I'm here. Okay, uh, I'm going through this pretty fast. Anybody, am I missing any comments or anything? Anybody wants to add to this? Yeah. To him and so forth of his being ruler now and, and worried about his doing his bodily harm. Yes. Jim mentioned uh, Joseph and how he was in a, suddenly in a place of power and he used it to show grace and kindness instead of uh, getting revenge. And, and you'll see that throughout the Old Testament. The, the Bible is giving us glimpses of God's grace leading up to the cross. And that's why we always say, if you're not reading the Old Testament in light of the cross, you're reading it wrong. Every, in every story, every passage, there's a road to Calvary. And, uh, you know, that's true of Joseph, and that's true of this little story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Okay, let's go to the next one here. David adopted Mephibosheth into his royal family, providing him with every blessing within the palace. Uh, look at uh, 2 Samuel 9, let's read verses 11 through 13. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. So, like Mephibosheth, we've been adopted into God's family. Uh, Mephibosheth was brought into David's family and treated like one of his sons. God does that for us. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. Uh, he's given us a spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We can pray to God as Father. And uh, He has made us heirs and, this is still in Romans 8, joint heirs with Christ. In other words, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that amazing that just because God loves us through Jesus, He can give us this family that we didn't belong to through adoption? Uh, he told this um, Gentile commander who had shown faith in Matthew 8, that he would recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That, that's a promise for all of us. We're, sit, we're sitting at the table in heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the greats that you read about, all the people in Hebrews 11, that hall of faith, all those people are a part of our family because of the grace that was shown through Jesus Christ. There's this parable in Luke 14... I want to pause for a moment and go over and look at it about a banquet. And I'm reminded of it because Mephibosheth is now eating at David's table. Uh, banquets back then were 
people still ate at tables. They didn't eat on the couch in front of the TV. They ate at tables. And so banquets, banquets were really popular and a show of fellowship. Fellowship was done around the table then as, it, as it's done now. Uh, and this parable is really about fellowship with God and joy with God, because that's another part of, of what meals were all about. Joy, sustenance, security, all of that is symbolized by a banquet. Inclusion. Uh, they were invited to the party kind of thing. So Jesus tells this parable in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, or actually verse um, 16, about a man who gives this great banquet and invites many people. When the time of the banquet comes, he told his servants to go out and get the people who have been invited. This is kind of an ancient practice. Uh, nowadays, we send the invitations or we email the invitations, and we, just, we can pretty much time it correctly. Back then, it was a little less formal in terms of when the time came. So the servants go out, and all the people invited, what do they do? You know the parable. They make excuses. I can't come because I'm doing this or that. One of them's bought oxen. One has bought a field. One has married a wife. We're assuming that she could have been his plus one, but, you know, she maybe didn't want to come. I don't know. That happens sometimes. He says he can't come. So when the servant comes back, the master is really angry about this, right? And he says to the servant, I want you to go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And so the servant did it, and they came. And he says, there's still room. So the master said, now I want you to go out into the highways and hedges. Now, for the symbolism of this, the highways and the hedges would be the edge of town, the outskirts. Who... Who would he be talking about on the outskirts? The undesirables and, and the, the Gentiles. You know, the people. So the um, poor and the lower class Jews were brought in, and there's still room. So he goes, go out to the highways and the hedges. Bring in the Gentiles is what he's hinting at here. And they'll, they'll come in and um, fill my house. And he says... In verse 24, I tell you, none of these men who are invited shall taste my banquet. It's a jab at the Pharisees who should have been prepared for the arrival of the Messiah. But when he came and invited him to his table, what did they do? They rejected him. And that's all right. He'll get the poor and the lame and the beggars and the Gentiles and whoever will come, they are the ones that can eat at the table. Now, Mephibosheth graciously accepted David's kind offer, but he didn't have to. He could have said, I want to stay in Lodabar. And David, I'm, I'm sure, would have left him right there. And God doesn't force us to the table. It's important that grace is met by faith. Right? God shows grace to everyone, but not everyone has faith to receive the grace. And so we're not talking universalism here. Everyone is not saved. Only those who 
trust Jesus enough to obey his commands and give him their lives. Um, so Mephibosheth was brought into the family, but he had to accept that invitation, which he was ready to do. Okay, ready to go on to the next one? Mephibosheth had this limp, and it was a constant reminder of David's grace. I think it was in the attitude class. I'm getting my classes mixed up, but I think it's the attitude class. We talked about Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8, where Moses says, be careful when you come into the promised land, lest you think by my own strength I've gotten this land. Don't start giving yourself credit for it. Well, Mephibosheth, he was, there was an advantage to this limp because it constantly reminded him that he was relying on David. He, he didn't forget. He never forgot that. Um, it's interesting to me, and it's another one of those things where you have to do some interpreting and you're not sure if you're on the right track, but look at the Look at the very end of the story. Look at how it's ended. The very last sentence is, now he was lame in both his feet. Now the writer already told us this. And the spirit is behind this. So it's not like something that got through the editors here. You know, it's, it's not an accident. There's a reason why the story ends, he was lame in both his feet. Um, I think it underscores Mephibosheth's vulnerability. You know, it's another, it's, it's a repetition, so it's emphasizing this is an important part of this story. Maybe that's it. It also underscores the continuing conflict between the, the fates of the house of Saul and of the house of David. Here, David is the gracious one. He's the powerful one. Saul's last living heir. He's, he's lame and completely dependent on David. So that, that's also there too. But I also think it's part of this reminder here. He was lame and he would always, this side of eternity, be lame. And he would always carry with him this reminder. It reminds me of another Old Testament story. Jim brought up Joseph uh, do you remember Jacob when he wrestled with the angel? Uh, they fought all night long, and the angel touched his hip socket and threw his hip out of joint. And from that day forward, Jacob limped on his hip. But that was a transformative night where he ceased being Jacob the deceiver and became Israel, uh, he who strives with God, the father of a nation. And Every time he got up in the morning, every time he got up from his seat, every time he walked from one place to the other and felt the pain in his hip, it was a reminder of what God had done for him. Now this gets into attitudes a little bit too. We all have a past, and there are parts of that past we would like to forget. You're not unique in having regrets. Everyone in this room has regrets. You can look at it one way or the other, you can just obsess over wishing you could erase it and try to 
relive the past and just be riddled with grief and regret. Or you can look at how far you've come, how far God has brought you, and use that limp, so to speak, as a reminder of how much God loves you and of His great grace and His power to forgive. It's, it's how you want to look at it. You can't make it go away as much as you'd like to. It's your limp. It's your scar. It's a spiritual scar. But it can be something you can use for good that fuels your gratitude for what God has done in your life. It's, it's kind of like Mephibosheth and what his limp did for him. Okay, got a little time to do the, uh, what do you call it, like the epilogue. So that's, this story's over, but there's a little bit more about Mephibosheth later on. So we'll get into David's problems um, in later classes because he's going to have his own set of woes and troubles. He's gonna, this is kind of the pinnacle of David's life here. And un, unfortunately, it, it takes a downhill slide from here. But later on, um, David's son Absalom rebels against him. A lot of you know that story. If you don't, we're going to cover it. And uh, when he does, he finds out who his true friends are. Well, let's turn over to 2 Samuel 16. Remember I told you about Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who was the servant of Saul? When Absalom had betrayed his father and had taken over Jerusalem, and David was fleeing from his own son, um, Ziba comes up to him. This is how 2 Samuel 16 begins. He comes with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? He's talking about Mephibosheth. Where's this guy that I brought out of Lodabar? Surely he hasn't abandoned me. Surely he hasn't betrayed me. And Ziba said, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. In other words, he's saying, You shouldn't have left him alive because he thinks he's going to be king now. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours, all that land around Gibeah. And Ziba said, I pay homage, let me forever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Okay, so is that really what happened? Well, let's turn over a few chapters after Absalom is killed. No, that's, if you haven't heard the story, that's a spoiler, but I think you probably knew that part. 2 Samuel 19, David comes back into Jerusalem and he finally confronts Mephibosheth. 2 Samuel 19, verse 24. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet or trimmed his beard or washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. Why is that detail there? That's evidence that Ziba was lying. 
Because a man preparing to be king, he grooms himself. He gets a pedicure. I mean, it says he, he didn't take care of his feet. I guess that means he didn't cut his toenails. Verse 25, And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. So it's Ziba's word against Mephibosheth's. Who do you believe? All my father's house, he says, verse 28, were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant, talking about himself, among those who eat at your table, what further right have I to cry to the king? So what does David do? Verse 29, the king said, Why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. Now, that's kind of, kind of a Solomon thing, you know, divide the baby. And it, I, I think it shows, um, shows David's leadership slipping a little bit. And who can blame him? I mean, after what he went through with Absalom... He's not really in a great place right now to handle these kinds of he said, he said kind of situations. But if Ziba was lying, then he needed to be punished. If Meph Somebody was lying, right? And Mephibosheth is clearly telling the truth here. I mean, the evidence is backing him up. He didn't have the motives that Ziba had. Ziba had more to gain from this than Mephibosheth. Um, you know, this story about he wants to be the next king, that's crazy because Absalom was planning to be the next king. There's no way Mephibosheth would have thought that. Anyway, look at Mephibosheth's response. I think this is what, this is the kind of attitude you have when you allow grace to permeate your soul. Verse 30, let him take it all since my lord the king has come safely home. He's saying, I don't need the stuff. I just want you. I don't know what David thought about that. Unfortunately, we're never told. But grace had changed Mephibosheth, and he was just glad to have the king home. And so... The last point here is Mephibosheth showed his gratitude to David through faithfulness. And grace ought to have that effect on us. You know, a lot of us try, and I know I'm out of time, but let me just make this point. A lot of us try to be obedient through a force of willpower or guilt that's being pressed on us or these feelings of obligation we've carried with us through, you know, from childhood or just you know, societal expectations. And it, it just doesn't work. It's just hollow service. It's superficial. It has no depth. What's going to get you serving and loving and forgiving and living, what's going to bring you peace and joy is grace met with your own gratitude. And so if you start feeling hollowed out, you lack motivation, go back to the cross Remember your limp, and then you'll, you'll remember 
why you're a Christian and why you want to worship and serve God. So we took a break from David's story a little bit to talk about this little episode in his life. We'll get back into the events next week as we do our next lesson.